Joe Wright was the pastor of the Central Christian Church in Wichita, Kansas. On January 23rd, 1996, he was asked to be a guest chaplain for the Kansas State House in Topeka. He prayed a prayer of repentance that was written by Bob Russell, the pastor of Southeast Christian Church in Louisville, Kentucky. According to an article in the Kansas City Star from January 24, 1996, his prayer stirred controversy. And one member of the legislative body walked out while others criticized the prayer. But the controversy didn't end there. Later that year, in the Colorado House, Republican Representative Mark Paschal angered lawmakers by using Joe Wright's prayer as an invocation. Some members there also walked out in protest. Paul Harvey. I love Paul Harvey. Paul Harvey got a hold of the prayer and he read it on his program. He got more requests for copies of it than any other thing he had ever done. So here's the prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before You today to ask Your forgiveness and to seek Your direction and guidance. We know Your Word says, Woe to those who call evil good. But that's exactly what we have done. We have lost our spiritual equilibrium and inverted our values. We confess that we have ridiculed the absolute truth of Your Word and called it pluralism. We have worshipped other gods and called it multiculturalism. We have endorsed perversion and called it an alternative lifestyle. We have exploited the poor and called it the lottery. We have neglected the needy and called it self-preservation. We have rewarded laziness and called it welfare. We have killed our unborn and called it a choice. We have shot abortionists and called it justifiable. We have neglected to discipline our children and called it building self-esteem. We have abused power and called it political savvy. We have coveted our neighbor's possessions and called it ambition. We have polluted the airwaves with profanity and called it freedom of expression. We have ridiculed the time-honored values of our forefathers and called it enlightenment. Search us, O God, and know our hearts 
today. Try us and see if there be some wicked way in us. Cleanse us from every sin and set us free. Guide and bless these men and women who have been sent here by the people of Kansas who have been ordained by you to govern this great state. Grant them your wisdom to rule and may their decisions direct us to the center of your will. Amen. Wow. That's a prayer that described the American culture pretty well. It's a prayer that essentially calls out sin. In that no matter how we have neatly packaged and intellectually justified, it's still sin. Sin against God. And it's a prayer which cries out for repentance for those who claim to know God. You know, the majority of Americans identify as Christian. The majority of Americans identify as Christians. They claim to know God. But given the state of our culture, it seems that many of these same people also prescribe to a gospel of addition. Have you heard that word, that phrase? A gospel of addition, meaning... They believe they can add Jesus Christ to their lives, but not subtract their sin. The Gospel of Addition. This morning we are going to look at a prophet who in many ways was dealing with the same kind of people with the same kind of problem. Religious people who claimed to know God, but many were unwilling to forsake their sinful ways. So, if you have your Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 3, Matthew chapter 3, and we will begin with verse 1. Matthew 3, verse 1, where Matthew tells us, Now in those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord. Make His paths straight. Now John himself, had a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist and his food was locusts and wild honey. Let's stop there. In this passage, Matthew begins with the phrase, now in those days. Do you see that? Now in those days, and with that phrase, we have to leapfrog 
some 28 years. Some 28 years have come and gone since Joseph and Mary and the child Jesus returned from Egypt and made their way to the town of Nazareth. And in that long stretch of time, Luke tells us in his Gospel, there are some new characters who have emerged on the scene. Tiberius Caesar is now the Roman Emperor. Pontius Pilate is the governor of Judea. Herod Antipas, who was a son of Herod the Great, is a ruler of Galilee. And Annas and his son-in-law Caiaphas are the high priests. Typically, there's only one high priest. Annas is the high priest that the Jews recognized. The Jews honor Annas. But Annas angered the Romans. And so they kicked Annas to the curb and brought in Caiaphas, his son-in-law. So the Jews recognized Annas while the Roman government recognized Caiaphas. So that's why we have two high priests. Okay? Now in those days... Matthew tells us there was another character who emerged onto the scene, and it's John the Baptist. I don't know how you picture him, but to me, he's this rough and tough, straight-talking, grisly Adams kind of guy who stands out in a crowd and doesn't care what other people think. That's just kind of how I picture him. He's wearing a garment of camel's hair. He's wearing the clothing of an Old Testament prophet during a time of spiritual crisis. And he's munching on grasshoppers and honey. So we know from that he has no fashion sense whatsoever and apparently he is not a finicky eater. Okay? So we know that. Okay? We are also told that he was preaching in the wilderness in the barren desert of Judea. For 400 years, heaven has been silent and a prophet of God has not been heard. But now the time has come and John has a simple message from God. A simple message. Repent. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Why this message? Well, I'll tell you why. God's people, for the most part, were religious, but in reality, they had abandoned their God. As a nation, the hearts of the people had become hard. And the religious leaders who were supposed to represent God and lead the people to God were completely out of touch with God. On one hand, you had the Pharisees. You know that name. The Pharisees who had become very legalistic in their views, turning God's Word into nothing but a sledgehammer. A sledgehammer. And then on the other hand, you had their rivals, the Sadducees, 
who had become very liberal in their views to the point they denied most of God's Word. Leading others away from God. But all the while, God was closer than they could have ever imagined for the Messiah was in their midst, preparing to begin His ministry, and they were called to repent. That word repent is not a popular word. It was not a popular word back then, and it's not a popular word now. The Greek word for repent is metanoeo. Metanoeo. That was a tongue twister. Metanoeo. Which literally means, which literally means to change your mind. Okay? That's what it means to change your mind. God's people had been thinking wrongly about God, thinking wrongly about themselves, thinking wrongly about righteousness, thinking wrongly about God's will thinking wrongly about sin. And the kind of repentance that John preached was a change of mind. For when the mind is changed, a change of life will follow. Or to say it another way, if you think differently, you will walk differently. That's the point. And if there is no change in one's walk, in one's life, then there has been no real repentance. So John commanded the people to repent. It's a command, not a suggestion. Okay? It's a command to change their minds about God, to change their minds about sin, because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. <clears throat> now Matthew's use... <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> of the phrase... Excuse me. <clears throat> Thank you very much. <clears throat> My throat got dry. <clears throat> Matthew's use of the phrase <clears throat> the kingdom of heaven throughout his gospel seems to be interchangeable with the phrase the kingdom of God used by the other gospel writers. And it seems that Matthew prefers this phrase because if you remember, he's writing to a Jewish audience who are very hesitant to pronounce the name of God. Okay? So the kingdom of heaven is another way of referring to the kingdom of God. And John says it's at hand because the king is present and he is about to reveal himself. Okay, if you look at verse 3 up there, <clears throat> you will see a reference about John the Baptist given by the prophet Isaiah. A reference quoted by all four gospel writers to explain who John was. For this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet when he said, 
the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. This quote comes directly from Isaiah chapter 40. And to understand this quote, I need to put it into context for you. Okay? The book of Isaiah was written during a period of turmoil in the southern kingdom of Judah. The northern kingdom of Israel had just been taken into captivity. And the big question was, would the southern kingdom of Judah follow suit? Well, in the first part of his book, Isaiah mostly prophesied doom and gloom for those in Judah because of their sin against God. And despite the warnings from him and from other prophets as well, the Jews continued in their sin. And just as they had been warned, they too were taken captive and sent to Babylon. We recall that in our study of Daniel, right? That's what happened. Just as Isaiah said it would happen. But fortunately, Isaiah was not all doom and gloom. For beginning in chapter 40, which is a turning point, it's the hinge point of this book, Isaiah says that peace is coming. There's a pardon by God. There's restoration on the horizon. And there's a prophecy about a messenger. A voice crying in the wilderness to prepare the way for the coming Lord. A voice none other than John the Baptist who makes the road straight for the Messiah who is on his way. Now, can you imagine the reaction of the Jews who were familiar with these words of Isaiah? If John is the prophesied herald... If he's the voice, then one has to assume that the long-awaited King and Messiah is coming, so they had better get themselves ready. And beginning with verse 5, we see people moving in God's direction. Verse 5. Then Jerusalem was going out to him, and all Judea, and all the district around the Jordan. And they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. So John is out there, literally in the middle of nowhere, in the desert... That's where God has led him. And at the beginning, honestly, I don't know who he is preaching to. If anyone. He didn't send out flyers. He didn't canvas the area. There was no social media. He's not even doing miracles. He's just out there preaching in the power of the Holy Spirit and over time the word starts to spread about this strange preacher. Little by little, word reaches those in Jerusalem. 
and in Judea and all around the Jordan River. People from all walks of life wanted to see for themselves what this preacher had to say. And so they make their way into the desert and these people are completely overwhelmed and moved to repentance. We're told that John baptized them as they changed their minds about God. But not only that, they agreed with God by confessing that their sins were just that. Sins against God. No excuses. Now I want to point something out here that you may not know. In that day, The Jews ritually baptized Gentile converts into Judaism. And if these converts were male, they would also be circumcised. It was a symbolic way for a Gentile to identify with the Jewish religion. But here, John is baptizing Jews. A baptism that required a great amount of humility for a Jew. Showing their willingness to turn from their sin and to prepare for the coming It had to be something to see out there in the desert along the Jordan River. But according to Matthew, John sees something else. And beginning with verse 7, this is what we are told. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism... He said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. The axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, these two rival religious parties, were coming together and coming out to see the baptisms. They weren't coming to be baptized, they were coming to see the baptisms, but mostly to find out who this John guy was. And when John sees them, they become his focus. And he has some choice words for them. Words that no one else would ever dare say. John calls these religious leaders vipers. They're poisonous and sneaky, and they are subtle in their ways. Yes, they are out there in the desert, but it's only out of curiosity, and of course, and of course, to be seen by others. To make a good showing. But in reality, to John, they were simply showing their true Colors. 
For he knew these religious leaders had no intention of changing their minds about God, about His will, about His righteousness, or about their sin. And because they were unwilling to change their minds, they would not change their ways. John knew they would not repent. And on top of that, he anticipated how they would respond by playing the entitlement card. And let me explain. The Jews assumed they were entitled to a right standing with God. They had ancestral leverage. Ancestral leverage because they had come from the line of Abraham and therefore they had no worries. They had their fire insurance policy and they could do what they wanted. Sound familiar? According to the Mishnah, which is a written collection of the early oral Jewish interpretations of Scripture, the Jews believed that the ancestors of Abraham would inherit the world to come. Some taught that Abraham stood guard at the gates of hell. Okay? Abraham stood guard at the gates of hell. And a Jew, not a Gentile, okay, but a Jew could say to him, I am your seed. And Abraham would send them to heaven. They claimed that it was by Abraham's righteousness because he trusted God that they would enter heaven. Because he trusted God, they would enter heaven. But John challenged their false belief with the words, For I say to you that from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. Let me say, there are several views when it comes to these stones. Some suggest these stones may have been Gentiles who had come out to see John. Others say these stones should be taken literally, meaning John is referring to to pebbles, to stones that are lying along the riverbank. Then there are those who claim that these stones refer to the same stones mentioned way back in Joshua chapter when the Israelites under the leadership of Joshua crossed the roaring Jordan River when it was at flood stage. In that account, by God's command and by faith, the priests carried the Ark of the Covenant into the river. And as they did, the river parted just like the Red Sea had did under Moses. As the Israelites crossed, 
God told the leaders of the twelve tribes to take a stone from the river and stack them up on the land as a memorial to that faithful event. So the place where John was baptizing might be the very same place where the Israelites had crossed the Jordan River and set up a memorial. A memorial of stones. Stones that may have still remained. Stones that John said God could raise up as children to Abraham. Implying. Whatever the case, implying that God would prefer lifeless stones over lifeless people with stone-cold hearts who are unwilling to change their ways. John continues and says the axe is ready to swing. This is not a pruning. This is not a trimming. The axe is ready to chop down their so-called religious entitlements and privileges and assumptions ready to cut them off because they were fruitless, unwilling to change their minds, and unwilling to change their ways. And then beginning with verse 11, John tells them about who is coming next. He says, As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I. And I am not fit to remove his sandals. And he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand. And he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor and he will gather his wheat into the barn and he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. This is the end of John's message. A message of contrast that rightly leads to a choice. And when speaking of contrast, John makes a very clear distinction between himself and Jesus who comes after him. In this passage, John explains that his baptism was only preparatory in nature. Preparatory. It was intended to prepare people for the coming King and Messiah. He didn't tell people to try harder to please God, but rather to repent of their sins and to trust the one who was coming, who was mightier, who is worthy. And he, referring to Jesus, would baptize in two different ways. With the Holy Spirit and with fire. With the Holy Spirit, God would make a permanent spiritual deposit of His indwelling presence in the lives of those who receive the gospel message of salvation and trust Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord. 
It is in this spiritual baptism, a baptism that occurs at the moment of salvation that believers would identify with their king. Then there is the baptism of fire. And this fire is not the appearance of fire at Pentecost as some might suggest. In context, this fire, described as unquenchable fire, speaks clearly of judgment. Where the wheat is separated from the chaff, and the chaff is then burned. Meaning, Jesus not only comes as the Savior who by grace gives us eternal life with God, but He will also come as the Judge who brings wrath upon those who reject God's free offer of salvation. So John the Baptist was sent to call people to repent. To change their minds and to change their ways. In many respects, it's an invitation. An invitation still given to people today. An invitation which prompts a choice. Repent and turn to God or refuse and face the terrible consequences. That's it. There is no middle ground here. So John would say, repent. Let us pray. Father, I thank you for this time in your word. I thank you for this prophet named John the Baptist. who's a straight shooter. He calls it like it is. And he gives us a clear choice. Repent and turn to God or refuse and face the consequences. It's as simple as that. There's no gray. It's black and white. There's no writing defenses. It's right or wrong. Father, I would pray that you would convict us of our sins. That you would show us where we we veer off the path that you have set for us. And Father, help us to turn to our Lord and Savior. I pray, Lord God, that Jesus would be our everything. May you be honored and glorified in our minds and in our ways. In Jesus' name. Amen. I was earlier this week I was talking to Scott. I can only avoid him for so long. I mean I have to talk to him. I do have to talk to him on occasion. So Scott and I were talking and and uh Just talking about what's going on in this world. Whether it's the Middle East, 
whether it's Ukraine and Russia, whether it's China and Taiwan. And then as he told me, there's the basically the wholesale massacre of Christians in in uh, what's that? South Africa. They're just massacring Christians right now. Just because you're a Christian. Things are getting crazy in this world. And I don't I don't mean to be morbid when I say this, but knowing all of that and knowing the word of God, there is also this I know it's going to sound bad. But I don't know a better word. Uh, Excitement. I'm not not minimizing what's happened, but there's an excitement in that we 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 are living in what what many have described as the last days. I mean, we are there. I don't know how to... We are there. I mean, this has got Matthew 24 just all, all over the... All, right? I mean, it's just, it's just... Who can deny that? And so I'm, I mean, I, my mind is focused on what is going on around us. And I say all that to say this. If there was ever a time, if there was ever a time to be proclaiming Jesus saves and that He is our only hope, it's now. If there's ever a time to be a John the Baptist, so to speak, to call it like it is, it's now. I was informed last night another 20-something-year-old took his life. There's not a lot of hope. This world offers none. I I plead with you. And I'm talking to myself too. I'm talking to myself too here. As God gives us an opportunity, we need to seize the moment. We need to tell people about Jesus Christ. Am I right? And I've had this talk with you before, and I'm going to tell you again, just like John the Baptist anticipated how the, the religious leaders would, would, would counter what he said, I'm going, to, I'm going to do the same to you right now. Okay? Well, Bob, you know, I just don't like speaking. I know you. I just don't like speaking. And just like John was a straight shooter, I'm going to follow suit. Bull! Because the, those of you who say that, I don't like speaking, are the same ones who can spend an hour talking about your kids, your grandkids, your sports team, your favorite movie, uh, political stuff. You can talk all day. You'll talk to a fence post. Am I right? You know I'm right. Yeah. You know I'm right. We are all we are all evangelists about the things that are important to us. I'm, be, I'm just I'm being the hey blame John the Baptist. I just you know, I'm just I'm just telling you like it is. 
We have no problem talking about those things that are important to us. And then we sit here. Oh, how I love Jesus. Oh, how I love Jesus. We'll sing it, right? In tune, out of tune. You'll, you'll, oh, how I love Jesus. But once we go out those double doors, mm, am I right? That's got to change. That's just got to change. Every one of us here. I don't even speak Spanish. But I could probably figure it enough, enough out to speak to someone about Jesus Christ. Am I right? You know I'm right. There's not a person here who would dare argue with me. Not a one. So what do you do about it? What do you do about it? Just in the normal course of your conversations, you'll be amazed. You'll just you'll be amazed how an opportunity will present itself. Just in a regular conversation. Just be ready. Just be ready. I've talked about hydraulics. And before I knew it, I was talking about Jesus. And don't ask me how I got there. Don't even know. So as, as God gives you the opportunity, I'm just asking you, you know enough, just to tell, just to tell what you know about Jesus. Are you going to have all the answers? No. Do I have the answers? No. You just share what you know. Not what I know. What you know. That's my encouragement to you this morning. If not now, if not now, then when? It's as bad as it gets out there. If not now, when? Okay? So as the opportunity presents itself, be ready to share what you know. That's all I'm asking. Matter of fact, in the mornings, as you're praying in the mornings, God, give me that opportunity. Help me to see it. Help me to seize it. Deal? Okay. Now maybe you're here this morning and you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Oh, give me the opportunity to share Him with you. I would love that. I would love to talk to you about Jesus Christ. Maybe you're looking for a church home. We'd love to have you here. Or maybe you just need prayer. I'd love to pray with you. However the Lord moves you this morning, just respond in obedience. Larry?